Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, we're not a very new podcast anymore. This is episode 90-something or 100-something of the podcast. I can't remember episode numbers or anything like that. But anyway, so basically, uh, for you new listeners out there, you people listening for the first time, what we do here in the podcast is I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, something we think uh, you guys out there would like to hear a conversation about. And then uh, at the end of the podcast, or you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go out and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. William Derezowitz, and Dr. Derezowitz is an award-winning essayist and critic who taught English at Yale and Columbia before becoming a full-time writer in 2008. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Harper's, The Chronicle of Higher Education, The Nation, The New Republic, Colette, and The American Scholar, and he is the author of Jane Austen and the Romantic Poets. A Jane Austen Education, How Six Novels Taught Me About Love, Friendship, and the Things That Really Matter. Uh, The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. And the bestseller, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. And lastly, he is the author of The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society, which was published in August by Henry Holt, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, Dr. Drezowitz, Bill... Uh, <laughs> thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast to uh, discuss this book with me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah. And you got my b- both of my names right, Bill and Derezovic. Good <laughs> job. Thank you, thank you. Um, so, yeah, so it's a, the book is a collection of essays, um, which are coincidentally my favorite books to read. We can get into the, that later. Um, but, you know, it's a little... Uh, you know, you know, I normally ask everybody when they come on, you know, what made you want to, uh, you know, write this book or whatnot. But uh, for the most part, um, I mean, uh, this book was pre-written before, <laughs> uh, you know, beforehand, except for you have, uh, I think, four new essays in, in the book. But uh, but what made you want to want to put this book together now, um, you know, other than, you know, mercenary <laughs> reasons or something like that. Uh, what was the genesis of the, yeah. uh, of, of the book? Uh, how did it come about? I've wanted to publish a collection of my best essays for a long time. Mm. I mean, of course, what I, what I would include, what I have wanted to include in the collection keeps changing because I keep <laughs> writing new essays, some of which I think are good enough for the book. And there's no logic to why I published it now, except for the fact that I finally was able to do it now. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, essay collections don't sell particularly well. Um, it seems like there's maybe a bit of a more of a vogue for that recently, maybe because people are like to read shorter. The internet has gotten been used to reading shorter, uh, but they still don't sell very well. And I, really, I just you know it came out when it was able to come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know I didn't you know it's not like it this moment. Uh, in, you know, American history or or social history or whatever. And, of course, the pieces, as you mentioned, the pieces have been written over mostly the last 15 years. A couple of them go back 
to the mid nineties. But you know, they reflect all the different moments in which they were written. Yeah. But I'm glad, you know, I'm glad this was finally able to come out. I mean, I wanted to put the, the no, I, I wanted to sort of preserve, uh, work, you know, pieces that are otherwise quite fugitive uh, between hardcovers mm-hmm. and by collecting them all together, give them hopefully some degree of visibility that they many of them certainly wouldn't have by themselves. Right. Yeah, see, the thing... Um I love about essay collections, not necessarily because everything is shorter, um, but the thing I like about it is that, um, one, like you said, you sort of, uh, you collect things that might have, even if you normally read a person um, in magazines or what have you, there might be a, a few things that have, you know, slipped through the cracks, uh, so to speak, and mm-hmm. so this way you, they're brought to your attention. But um, the thing I really like about them is you're, Somewhere in the collection of essays, you're probably going to come into contact with something you normally maybe or probably wouldn't have read about it if you were uh, just flipping through a magazine or a newspaper, you know, um, mm-hmm. on, a, on a topic you wouldn't normally read about and and, mm-hmm. and thereby reading about it, you learn from it and then you gain a new appreciation uh, for something for a... Um, uh, for something you didn't really know much about or, uh, you know, had never really read much about before or thought about before. Um, and so that's what I've always liked about uh, essay collections is sort of, uh, you know, the, the little things in there that you, um, like I said, that you're sort of, because you want to read the whole book, <laughs> you know, you sit through it and, and, uh, and read it and, um, like I said, learn from something from an unexpected uh, source or direction, that sort of thing. I think that's right. You know, I've never really thought about it, but I think some of my favorite books are also essay collections. And I think one of the reasons is exactly what you just outlined. Um, I mean, you know, I have, a bu- I have a bunch of previous books and the topics of all of them, and well, in one way or another, are represented in this collection. Plus, you know, there's a whole section on higher education and there's a whole section on the arts, mm-hmm. um, but also a lot of other things things that I've been writing about but have not written a book about, you know, things I've written a lot about, and then a, a lot of things that I've just wrote one or two pieces about yeah. that, that I think are interesting. And, you know, I, I think the pieces are worth, uh, are worth reading. So, yeah, I'm glad that you, you have that kind of experience. Yeah, yeah. You're, uh, specifically, um, the ones like that, for the, your pieces on Merce Cunningham and Mark Morris, the choreographers, that mm. sort of like that, like mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. a... Um, something, you know, it was really interesting learning about, uh, those two. And then after, you know, mm-hmm. actually after reading those essays going and, um, you know, just sort of going on Wikipedia and just, you know, just, you know, checking out their bios and that sort of thing. And actually it turned out, uh, I had just bought a book, uh, from the library of America. They have a, like a volume, an anthology on, on dance in America and I was just oh, like yeah? flipping through it, and yeah. and like one yeah. of one of the uh, one of the pieces in the uh, in the anthology is written by Merce Cunningham. So I was like, oh, okay, now <laughs> when I read that, you have, uh, the, con- now you have the context. Right, yeah, right, right. Now yeah. I have a little. So um, yeah, so like I said, it's always nice to um, you know, like I said, come across uh, stuff like that to to learn from. But anyway, um, but the uh, the book itself. So the title essay. 
um, The End of Solitude. Uh, this is yeah. an essay that came out back in uh, 2009. And right. so you in the essay, you're writing about how technology is taking away not just our privacy and our concentration, but our ability to be ourselves. Um, what did you mean be by alone be alone with ourselves? Yes, right. So, um, so what did you mean by that? And do you think the problem has gotten has gotten worse over the twelve years since you you know since you wrote that essay? Yeah. Um, so the essay came out in two thousand nine. It was it was prompted by my having joined Facebook the year before. Mm-hmm. I was in my mid forties. I joined around the time that all of my friends were joining. I mean, that's why <laughs> I joined. Like, oh, you got to be on Facebook. Yeah. And, you know, it's this remark when you first experience it, it's really remarkable in a lot of ways. But I also quickly saw how much it kind of became an addiction and how it was changing the nature of my interactions with my friends. Uh, and that's really what lay behind uh, that essay. Um, I think the I think the useful distinction to make in understanding what I'm saying in the title essay in the end of solitude is that solitude uh, is more than just the state of being alone. So we can distinguish aloneness, which is just being alone. It's an objective state. You can look at someone and see whether they're alone. And then there are two words that we use that describe very different subjective reactions to that objective state. And one of them is loneliness. And loneliness is a feeling of absence and loss and emptiness and distress. And what I'm calling solitude, in some ways, it's the same thing that Whitman called idleness. Mm-hmm. It's the thing. That, it's the thing that Thoreau obviously documents in Walden. Um, aloneness is a is the opposite of loneliness. I'm sorry. Solitude is the opposite of loneliness. It's a sense of fullness and plenitude and richness and attentiveness. I think. I think the more I think about this and talk about this, the more I realize how fundamentally it's about attentiveness. Um, uh, and that's a very, I mean, it's a very creative state. It's a very, like I said, sort of very full state. And it's a state in which I think we're able to, um, I know it's sort of a vague kind of cliche phrase, but to be in touch with ourselves, to sort of become aware of, well, of what's around us, of the people around us, of, say, the nature or the cityscape around us, but also of what's inside us. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think, um, what the essay is about is about how social media in particular and the internet in general have, have not going to say they've robbed us of our ability to do that. They have caused us to rob ourselves of our ability to do that because we, because we cannot abide that state of being alone. Yeah. Uh, we constantly, we are constantly connecting with others one way or another. Um, yeah. Uh, and and it and it creates you know I mean this this I mean every, I think everybody of course everybody understands the subjective experience of being online and it's a very fragmented experience right um, if the state if the if the condition of of paying attention of being attentive mm-hmm. is a condition of constant is can be understood as one of concentration and I mean that in the in the familiar sense of the word you're concentrating on one thing but I like I mean if you think about what the word literally means. You are gathering yourself into one point instead of flying off in a thousand different right, directions right. at once. 
And just to, I mean, just to answer your last question, if things gotten worse, oh boy, if they gotten worse. <laughs> and I think the main, the main reason they've gotten worse, it's not even that there are more platforms than there used to be, although there are. It's that uh, when I re- when that essay came out, the iPhone had been introduced only the previous year, and the yeah, uptake yeah. was still happening. And it wasn't only until about 2013 that it really became something that everybody had. Right. And that 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 brought it to a new uh, order of magnitude. Because when I wrote that essay, you know, you'd go on your laptop, you'd you'd scroll through Facebook on your laptop. And then you'd close your laptop to go shopping. Right, and that's it. To go stand in line to get a cup of coffee, to go hang out with your friends, and you—that was it. You—you you weren't connected to Facebook anymore. And of course, now we know that anytime most people are doing any of those things, they're looking on their phone. And whether it's yeah. Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or just—you <laughs> know—just scrolling through the news, whatever it is, uh, that's what they're doing. Yeah, I remember the first time I realized that the smartphone uh, thing was like really a problem that was warping us. Uh, I was in uh, I was in an airport. I was flying to D.C. for some uh, work thing, and uh, uh, on my flight, so in the gate area at my flight is was a group of um, uh, like middle school kids going flying on the on the plane going to DC for like you know because a lot of schools uh, you know they send the kids to DC in like eighth grade for like a class trip that sort of thing. So uh, there's probably like forty or so middle schoolers in like the my little gate area, and uh, I'm a weirdo. I always like bring a book. <laughs> wherever I go usually I'm never if you see me in an airport or something like that like I'm probably not on my phone I'm, I probably have my nose buried in a book but so anyway but I was just looking around and every single one of these kids like every like a hundred percent of them were just sitting there uh, just face completely captured by the phone in front of them and I would notice that they were talking to each other like to the kids and like the seats next to them and whatnot, but they were like talking to each other while never like making eye contact with each other, just like staring at their phones and doing whatever the hell they were doing on the phones, but still yeah. having like conversations, you know, with uh, the other kids and next to them. And I just I was sitting and looking around. I was like, man, I was like, maybe these things are <laughs> warping. Uh, our brains uh, to some uh, to some degree. Well, sure. I mean, think about what I mean. You've evoked for me my eighth grade class trip to Washington, and uh, I mean, granted, it was by bus, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we went by bus. You too, know, <laughs> yeah. What what uh, I mean, what you know, what I remember for that trip. I think I have one memory of being in the Smithsonian, but mainly it's just the constant social, I mean, you know, being in middle school was this intensely social experience. I mean, you know, you've hit puberty, so this is like the beginning, like it's boys and girls, yeah. and like the girls are doing that complicated girl thing they do with yeah. the hierarchies and the social They have boobs now, and, and it's, yeah, it's and, then, and then, no, but I mean, <laughs> think about what the experience of being oh, in middle school is right, right, right. Yeah, for just... a girl. 
right? Yeah. This, this very complicated social, uh, kind of female social interaction. That they're learning, social ballet, that they're basically. To, that they're learning and that they're learning to practice with all kinds of subtle signals and subtle hierarchy. And the boys have their own version. It tends to be cruder and more physical, but it's the same kind of thing. And you're sort of learning, you're sort of figuring out together what it is to be a man. I mean, ultimately, that's what you're doing. Um, and that's incredibly important work. It's, it's not only is it cognitively demanding, but it's, it, it's the way you become socialized. It's the way you learn to be a social being. And, you know, there's been a lot of work since then. I mean, Jean Twenge's book, iGen, which really mm-hmm. dates a radical shift in the socialization of teenagers to 2013 because of the iPhone and other work that people have been doing. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I mean, the pandemic has complicated this, but even has made it even worse. But even before that, um, it, it seems to be the case that young people, the, the generation of growth with smartphones, is much less capable of, they're just much less socially capable. Mm-hmm. And this is showing up in all kinds of ways, you know, in terms of uh, dating and sex and ability to adjust to the challenges of life on campus. Yeah. Ability to adjust the challenges of life in the economy. You know, uh, difficulty just having and reluctance to have actual conversations, whether face to face or over the phone, as opposed to mediated and curated via text or social media. Right. Right. This is this is I mean, this is really fundamental stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm just uh, are you still on social media? Do you still use Facebook or any of that stuff? I use it, but I use it sparingly. Yeah. See, I don't. (laughs) I don't use it. I mean, uh, I I used to, um, you know, I was um, Facebook came out when I was. It was like the tail end of when I was in college. So it was back when Facebook still, um, it was only on, you could only have access to it if you were on certain uh, schools. And so you had to sign up with like your, your, uh, your university ID. So like my old Facebook was under my university ID. And, uh, and I had it, you know, for a few years. And then um, it just... I don't know. It started to strike me the more and more, you know, more and more of my friends were on it and acquaintances and people, you know, that I went to high school and worked with over, you know, uh, but hadn't talked to in years or whatever. But it just, it just sort of struck me as so um, artificial and fake <laughs> and. Uh, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it seemed like everybody wasn't actually, I mean, well, obviously every, cause it's public. So everyone's not being themselves on it. They're just sort of being the PR version of themselves or the, mm-hmm. the online version of themselves. And I, you know, and I just, um, you know, I, I so it just, eventually it just, I, I just didn't really get why I was still participating in it because I figured like, well, I mean, it's nice. Yes. That you can be able to communicate with all these people all over the country that you don't normally talk to 
and you know keep in touch and all that sort of stuff. And then I was thinking about, I was like, well, wait a minute, if I don't normally keep in touch with them, you know, what does it matter if I keep yeah. in touch with them or not? Right. Um, because you know, like the people in my life that like I actually you know want to uh, keep in touch with, I keep in touch with, right? <laughs> you know, like I keep in touch with my friends, right. I keep in touch with my family, I call, I text, you know. All that sort of stuff. I see them, you know, in person, uh, face to face, that sort of thing, and um, you know, it, 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 you know, it did help me like reconnect with some people that, uh, you know, I, and that are that I'm still in touch with that I probably wouldn't be, you know, if Facebook never existed. But, um, but it just it just got to the point where like yeah, I don't really get anything out of this, and I don't, like, um, <laughs> I don't want to participate in it anymore because it makes me it makes me act differently um you know whenever i post something or something like that uh you know and i i don't know i just didn't it just felt like it's just like just like ersatz friendship you know and uh i just so i i finally the only thing i have now really is i have like a a twitter account that i don't even uh uh tweet from you know I, I just basically use it as like a news aggregator you know like i follow like mm-hmm, the magazines mm-hmm. and things like that that uh you know mm-hmm. i need for work or just you know general interest that sort of stuff but i never actually tweet so my my i've never had instagram or snapchat or tiktok or anything like that i'm very fortunate um like i don't even think text messaging was a thing until like it, maybe i think i'd actually graduated college by the time like texting actually came around so Mm -hmm. i'm very i I feel very fortunate that i'm of that last cohort that actually got to like experience their entire childhood and early adulthood um offline and out of the public eye not because there's anything to like um hide or you know anything i mean obviously everybody's got embarrassing stuff about teenage years and whatnot but it's just um, but I never had to worry about maintaining like an online persona as a child. And, um, I don't, I'm, wor- you know, I'm just, I worry about like the kids, all the kids who have come up, you know, been, come up since then who had had to, uh, do that, you know, sorry, I rambled absolutely. a little bit there, but that's okay. No, absolutely. I agree. I yeah. agree. So. Uh, anyway, but speak. Uh, but more on solitude. You're, um, you're. I was really interested with the, your, uh, the address you gave uh, to the pleb class at uh, pleb class at West Point. Um, yeah. So, were, uh, how did that come about? Were you specifically, were you asked specifically to speak about uh, solitude and leadership, or was that your own choice? I mean, uh, how did you get invited? What did they, um, you know, what did they ask you to talk about that sort of stuff? Right. So after the uh, the end of Solitude essay came out, I was contacted by a friend of mine who was teaching in the English department at West Point. She had circulated it among her colleagues. Uh, it actually, and 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 she and two two of them, uh, uh, two of the others wanted to invite me. Mm to talk to the plebe class. They thought that this would talk to the plebe class about solitude and the value of solitude. And I, I, I agreed, but I was, I was, um, 
I was a little worried about what I would say and how I would say because, you know, I'd been a, you know, Yale, Columbia, blah, blah, blah. Basically, I'd lived my entire life within the Ivy League bubble. My dad taught at Columbia. So these were the kinds of people I knew. These were the kinds of students I was used to talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I figured correctly that West Point students, while very capable, uh, are different kind of people with certainly different interests and a different point of view. Not that they're all the same, but broadly speaking. How am I going to connect with them? How are they? How am I going to get them to even pay attention to what this outsider, this civilian, uh, has to say? So I started to poke around a little bit and do a little research just by going on the website. Uh, and I realized pretty quickly that while the official motto is uh, honor, duty, country. Uh, the word that seemed to be most important, that appeared most prominently and seemed to be have the most value placed on it was leadership. Mm. Is leadership. For understandable reasons. So I thought, well, maybe this is my way into them. Can I connect solitude and leadership in a way that is going to be compelling for them? Can I connect it, them in a way that that's even that's even going to make sense to me? Is there a connection between solitude and leadership? Um, so I thought about it a lot. And I think, I don't think I was aware of this yet until I embarked on this project. But I think the word leadership had been bothering me for a long time. Uh, because I taught at Yale, you also hear the word leadership there all the time as well. <laughs> um, leadership, but I think more commonly in the form of leader, leaders. We educate the leaders. Harvard trains the leaders. Uh, you're going to be a leader. You know, look at all the leaders we've produced. Well, what does this mean, leader, leader, leader? Who, who are these leaders that I'm that I'm constantly being told about? And I, and I realize that I think this is still true. Um, the people they're talking about aren't leaders at all, very often. They're just successful. They're just successful people. It seems to be a synonym for getting to the top, for getting all the goodies that an elite education promises you. Status, wealth, power. So what does leadership really mean? I mean, I think West Point is one of the few institutions where leadership still means leadership. Mm-hmm. And it still means self-sacrifice. It still means duty. It still means stewardship and service. It still means putting other people ahead of yourself and being guided by, you know, steering by uh, ideals. So to boil down that talk, which uh, it really has traveled very widely, right? I still see people because I am on Twitter and I still, still still see people tweet about it and talk about how they read it every year. Yeah, I mean, it's a great address. Uh, it, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was taught quite widely across the military. Some business schools taught it as well. Um, there was a whole book that was inspired by it uh, called Lead Yourself First by a couple of military guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the piece makes a very simple argument. It says that in order to be a leader, you need to be able to think, which really means you need to be able to think for yourself. 
And to be able to think for yourself, you need to be able to be alone in the way that we were talking about before. So that you can draw the line between uh, yourself and the world. You can figure out where peer pressure, social pressure, expectations, convention, training, all the things that are impinging on you, where those things stop and you start. And your own point of view starts. Right? Mm -hmm. So... So that's that's where that piece came from. Yeah, it's funny how uh, you know the, the sort of you talk about leadership being brought up in the Ivy League and how it's brought up at West Point. Um, how they've those institutions have sort of gone in different directions, or the people uh, who make up those institutions have gone in different directions. Because it used to be, uh, you know. Uh, or back when these schools were more, uh, when the Ivy League was basic, or at least Harvard and Yale and you know Princeton were basically just uh, you know sort of grooming schools for the, you know the the elite wasps and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, but you know after uh, West Point and maybe uh, even maybe above the the Naval Academy, uh, you know there have been more. I think more Harvard grads have have won the Medal of Honor than from any other uh, college or university in the country, and you know there used to be that whole sort of idea in that class of uh, you know sort of like the the gentleman warrior or the you know the scholarly warrior sort of thing, and that sort of person for the most part has totally sort of totally disappeared uh, you know from from American life in general yeah I mean I, I would yes and I would add to that I actually wrote a short piece about this I think I called it Jacob and Esau because um, when I when I got to West Point first of all I had I, was, I had a complete misconception about what it looked like. I thought it would look like an army camp, like a lot of... Oh, it's beautiful. Tents and stuff like that. It's, well, it's beautiful, but specifically it's gothic. Yes, right? yes. It's gothic just as Yale is gothic, except they're different gothic styles. Yale is like monastery gothic. <laughs> and and uh, no, I mean, it is. That's, mm-hmm. what, that's what those quadrangles are. Sure, yeah. You know, that's, that's, that is the template for them, right? Um uh, the cloister, right? Um, West Point is fortress gothic. But what that brought home to me in a very concrete way was that once upon a time, these were, I'm not going to say sister institutions, but I used the metaphor of Jacob and Esau, that they told, you know, they were brothers, even if they were different brothers. Um, and, and, and quite literally, you know, you talked about, you know, the scholar warrior. Well, at the very least, you might have had one son in the family who went to Harvard, Yale, at Princeton, and one who went to West Point. Mm-hmm. Um, they were part of the same idea. They drew from the same elite. Now, it was, as you say, a restricted elite. It was a wasp elite. And I'm certainly glad that, you know, uh, uh, really in the 60s as a result of very specific decisions made by Ivy League admissions offices, um, but under tremendous social pressure, that elite, you know, overcame itself. I write about this in an excellent sheet. It decided to sort of put itself out of business because 
there you know rising groups in the country that that needed to be cut into power so Catholics and Jews and women and people of color great um, but one result of of that change is that these worlds have grown completely apart mm -hmm. and that they don't know each other anymore they don't know each other anymore and it is true that that wasp elite had an ethos. I mean, this is really what I was talking about before. It had an yeah. ethos of leadership. And the kinds of occupations that a lot of those sons went into. Military, diplomacy, CIA, of course, started at Yale. Um, uh, you know... A lot of the State Department was, uh, I mean... Obviously, yeah. made up from members of that class and, you know, from That's those right. schools. As I said, diplomacy, right? Yeah. Elected office, um, various, you know, foundations, um, you know, museums. Uh, it was an ethos of stewardship. And while the meritocracy has made things much more equal, it's also been inseparable with an ethos of self aggrandizement. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, this is a lot of what excellence she was about. Um, you know, you, know, you, you, uh, you know, you, you got here because you deserve to, and the purpose of getting here. I mean, of course, there's always lip service to, you know, changing the world, making the world a better place. <laughs> but I mean, we just, if we just look at the postgraduate destinations now, mm -hmm. they are law, medicine, finance, consulting, and tech. They're simply the most, you know, the most high earning occupations in society, in the economy. That's all they are. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, more on, uh, elite education since it makes up uh, you know uh, obviously you know excellent sheep is all about that but and, uh, but it still figures into this collection too uh, or the disadvantages of an elite education you have an essay on that from 2008 um, what are those disadvantages to an elite education to you yeah this is the essay that excellent sheep came out of Right. This is, I mean, this is the most viral essay I've ever written. I think Solitude and Leadership is number two. Um, the point of the title is that everybody understands that there are many advantages to an elite education. And this is why kids kill themselves to try to get into one of these colleges that now has admissions rates in the single digits and in some cases in the low single digits. And families and whole communities and whole classes of families kill themselves and, you know, really organize the whole of their child-rearing years around getting their kids into these schools. So access and status and wealth and all those things. My whole point is that, look, you have to look at the fact that there's tremendous disadvantages, too, that ultimately call into question whether doing this is worth it. Um, the biggest one is that because the admissions arms race has just continued to spiral ever higher, uh, I think everybody understands this, since the shift to meritocracy in the mid-60s, um, the whole of childhood for students who get into these schools and students, many students who don't get into these schools, is just one long series of hoops, jumping through hoop after hoop after hoop putting one foot in front of the other, not able to think at all about any kind of larger purpose, what they want out of life, uh, what they're interested in. Uh, it's just, you know, the next club, the next team, the next instrument, the next test. 
you know, can't even take a day off, can't even get a single decent night's sleep. I mean, this is the reality. And people have been writing about it for a lot longer than I have. The first people to write about it were adolescent psychologists because mm. they saw the tremendous psychological toll this was taking on students. So, you know, you just kind of become what David Brooks calls an achievement machine. And the biggest disadvantage is that you, you, you become what, I mean, that title, Excellent Sheep, came out of the mouths of one of my students as a sort of startled, in a startled moment of collective self-recognition. So these kids are excellent, but they're, they're also sheep, most of them, in the sense that they, they only know how to follow the herd. They followed the herd to, you know, Brown. Yeah or Stanford, and now they're going to follow the herd to Wall Street. Or they're excellent at doing what they're told, basically. They're excellent at doing what they're told, and they have no idea what they want to do themselves. Right. I mean, there are other disadvantages as well that we could talk about. I mean, one thing is that this, is, this, this becomes profoundly anti-intellectual. Because students, I mean, and students will literally say this. They will say, I don't have time to pursue my intellectual passion. Professor, I would like to think more about what you're telling me, but what I'm learning in your class, but I've got four other classes and I'm on four clubs and I'm the editor's school paper and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So, and, and the, the few students I had over the years, and I would do one or two each year, who really did want to have an intellectual experience, uh, felt marginalized, not just by their peers, but by the university itself. They felt that the university was not, this is at Yale, the university was not set up to serve their needs. I also think this, this system, and, and this is where, and this is the last couple of chapters of Excellent Sheep, that this is the system that is indeed producing what we call our leadership class, the people mm -hmm. in charge of our institution. And you see all, I mean, you see among our leaders, you know, I wrote this in 2008, it was in the original essay, it was the year of the financial collapse. It was a few years after the disastrous invasion of Iraq. It was a few years after the collapse of Enron. You know, uh, you see among our national leadership class exactly the negative traits that we see among these high-achieving hoop-jumping students. <laughs> and and one of the, and one and you know we I talked about self-aggrandizement mm. and well risk risk aversion is a huge one because you know you you don't have any room. To pursue an interest that, you know, you have to get an A in everything. So you can't risk taking class in something you're interested in if you don't already know a lot about it, if you don't already know that you're really good mm -hmm. at it. Yeah. Um, but another one that I think is really important that I think about a lot is that um, these, these schools and the communities that mainly send students to them are, are, have become bubbles. And so our, our leaders are just completely cut off from the experience of most people in the country. Yeah. Uh, they don't realize that. I mean, this is a class of technocrats who think that if they get the spreadsheets right, then they'll be able to produce policies that are effective and policies that, will, that people will get behind. But you have to start with people's experience and people's needs. And I think that that has a lot to do with our the policy failures, I'd say the bipartisan policy failures of the last decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talk about how they don't know how to talk to others, or at least others uh, outside anyone of... Anyone who isn't like them. Anyone who isn't yeah. like them, correct, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I've That's always... Right. I've always... You know, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old uh, 
son now and you know i spend a lot of time you know thinking about you know his future and all that sort of stuff and um you know i think about for all the reasons you describe about the whole uh the process of getting into one of these schools um that you sort of have to be you know unless you're a legacy or sorry you know your grandfather's name's on a building or something like that um you know you sort of have to be like monomaniacally uh monofocused on this on this one thing uh from middle school on you know basically like your entire life yeah. is revolved around uh getting into the school and that's all you can think about and all you can do and i you know and i think do i you know would i want my child to be the type of person that gets into an ivy league school at, or, or an elite school at this stage and you know i you know if he has that if that's like what he wants to do and if that's like his drive and that's his focus for whatever whatever friggin reason if he wants to go to you know princeton or harvard or or, or duke or you know whatever great um but i hope not <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like i would rather him not be uh you know th- that type not that i don't want him to be uh smart or i don't want him to be well educated or i don't want him to um you know uh live a prosperous life but i just think there's just so much more to everything than like you said than just being one of these these expert hoop jumpers and i want him to uh sort of you know be well-rounded i want him to uh be um uh for one thing, I want him to be the one thing above all. I want to teach him is is gratitude and um, humility, and, <laughs> and uh, uh, you don't see much humility uh, out of that class uh, these days. Um, uh, the 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 entitled sense of self worth uh, or the false sense of self worth that you know people who go to uh, you know I, no if I'm not talking about you I know you went to uh, Yale and everything I'm, you know not all of you guys. Uh, but you know, from a lot of them, uh, that there's a false sense of self-worth just because you know they, uh, you know, have that diploma behind them. And um, yeah, so I just, uh, in your experience, you know, teaching at at Yale um, and Columbia, so that's you know two of the two of the Ivies. Are the kids, uh, are the kids that are there, are they there because their parents? really really push them to do it or are they there because i mean that's what they figured out that they wanted and they're just like that type of um you know person like uh they're there's that self-motivated and that uh uh focused on on getting to that school and because you think you sort of have to be that more of that sort of person than just someone who's being pushed by you know uh your parents or whoever yeah, it's like you think it would that have to be like you can't, uh, uh, you know, like Michael Jordan didn't become Michael Jordan because of his father. I mean, well, partly because of his father, but you know, partly because he just he has that innate sort of uh, almost sociopathic <laughs> focus on being, you know, the best sort of thing. You know. Well, I, I think that it's a bit of a false dichotomy. 
I mean, I certainly encountered students at those places who mm-hmm. come from relatively ordinary backgrounds and really just had that that gene of ambition. Or listen, in some cases, they're just really gifted and smart and mm-hmm. wanted to wanted to get to a place where they were among people like them and didn't feel like such freaks in high school. But I think I think the, the sizable majority of, school, of students at elite schools come from the kinds of communities where all the families are competing and all the students are competing. So what a particular, you know, the drive that a particular student comes, you know, gets to middle school and has, and it, you can no longer separate. You can no longer say, is this innate? Is this something that their parents are pushing them to do? Because it's mm-hmm. not just their parents. It's their entire environment. That's right? true, yeah. It's what they see around them. So, I mean, kids are naturally going to absorb that and do what everyone else around them is doing. And it almost happens without anybody thinking about it. That's the thing. I mean, I would say, I mean, you didn't ask for my advice, and I don't really mean it to, <laughs> to you. I don't really mean this as advice for you in particular. No, go ahead, Dave. But I think, but I think that, that if their parents, for those parents, and I, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of parents' groups, uh, and there are always groups of parents who are concerned about what this system is doing to their kids because they can see it. That's why they invite me to talk. Um, I kind of feel like there, there's maybe no real uh, solution short of leaving that and taking your kid out of that environment. Like I talked to a parents' group at um, near, you know, in this in Silicon Valley, Los Altos Hills. Mm-hmm. one of the wealthiest communities in the country. And there was a mom who asked me, like, do I just have, do we just have to move? And, you know, I, I said, yeah, well, maybe. Because, I mean, I don't know how you stay in Los Altos Hills or Palo Alto or the Upper East Side or the Boston suburbs and, and, and not have this attitude. No matter, I mean, because, again, I mean, I've known parents or I've known kids who told me that their parents are the not crazy ones. <laughs> but it but it doesn't but it doesn't matter if your parents are crazy because mm. everyone else's parents is crazy. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. All right, well, all right. Enough about uh, higher ed. Uh, we've already. I'm sure you've you get most of the. I'm sure you're tired of talking about higher ed yourself after all these years. But I'm not, uh, t- I'm not tired of talking. I'm not tired of talking about it. And I, uh, I mean, I just want to say that in the book, it is, the longest section is on higher ed. I start with the, with the disadvantages essay because it's the earliest one, and it's sort of like where the line of thinking starts. But there are, I think, five other sizable essays in that section that continue to talk about evolving issues mm-hmm. in higher education. Yeah, um, well, which I think are connected. But we can we can move on. I'm perfectly happy. To move on too. Well, we've already gone uh, quite a bit, so I mean, there's other stuff. I mean, we can, I'd, I'd want to, I mean, I'd love to talk to you about the whole, you know, your essay on, uh, on political correctness in colleges, uh, you know, especially, uh, you know, selective private colleges, but, um, you know, that's something that can probably lead to another like 20 minutes of discussion. So I want to get to some other okay. stuff. Uh, okay. but yeah, so <laughs> I love this one. Uh, it's funny, uh, you know, you wrote this uh, piece for the times back in 2012, uh, about foodism and how foodism yeah. has replaced art and that you've basically gotten more blowback or uh, anger over that piece than basically anything 
um, you've written. Well, word, well, word, word for word. Word for word, right? Word for word, more than Yeah, but it's just funny how uh, you know if you write for a living, it it's funny how something you think is just. Uh, it's always something out of left field that gets <laughs> sort of like the most uh, vitriol and hatred or, you know, or uh, mm-hmm, anger mm-hmm. attached to it. But, uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, but uh, yeah, talk about, uh, talk about a little bit about this, how foodism has replaced art. Right. Uh, you're right. I didn't, I mean, you know, the elite education stuff, I expected all the vitriol I got. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't see this coming. Uh, well, what I, I listen—it's not that it's replaced art completely. What I what I said was, and I also think that in some ways, you know, this is an essay from ten years ago. I'm not sure we're in that moment anymore. But ten years ago, really, I, I in my perception, you know, sort of food, foodiness, foodism, was really cresting. It would seem to be everywhere. It seemed to be what everybody talked about all the time. Um, and w- what I say is that. Um, it has, in some sense, replaced art as the content of culture for the educated, uh, you know, affluent classes, mm-hmm. right? You know, in, you know, you're not, you're not talking, you're not, um, you're not getting social brownie points for having gone to the opera, the ballet, the theater. I mean, maybe some people still do that, but it's not the cultural currency. It's not what people are expected to know. What people talk about are the new restaurants, the recipes they're trying, uh, various exotic kinds of substances and foodstuffs that become trendy. You know, a long time ago it was arugula, and now we've gotten more sophisticated in various kinds of, you know, ancient grains. People are talking about, you know, cooking exotic grains and, and, and that. Um, and I kind of trace point by point how the structure of foodism is really homologous to the, you know, we've got, you know, uh, food criticism and food memoir and uh, televised competition and awards and prizes. And, this, and it's sort of like, like uh, culture in the old days. You know, we, we look to France and Italy in particular as models, but we've also reached a, more, a point of sort of more eclectic global mindedness, just as we, we did with culture. Mm-hmm. Um, what really, none of that really got people angry. What got people angry was the end of the essay, where I say, yes, food is nice. I like good food too. But for all that, food is not art. <laughs> food does not appeal to the parts of ourselves that art appeals to. And if we replace art culture with food culture, we are, we are missing something very big. And what got people enraged was the idea that food was not art. And I found this stupefying. I mean, that's, it's the one piece in the essay where I write a whole other piece that's about as long as the original, trying to respond to the objection that food is art. And I try to talk about what art actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, but but, but it, it, it's, I mean, that's when I realized sort of this, this this, this sort of almost religiosity about food had brought people to the point where it was kind of blasphemous to assert that food isn't art. And it didn't matter that, you know, with the people I argued about, about this with, I would say to them, you know, like, 
20 years ago, nobody would have said, nobody would even have thought to have said that food is art. But that, that didn't seem to deter them at all. Was it, were these people that were responding, was it specifically like, uh, like hot cuisine and, uh, you know, uh, were they talking about like Michelin starred restaurants being art, you know, uh, like the, 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 the no, chefs at those restaurants, being, or, or were they saying like, hey, you know what, like, like barbecue is an art or, no, you know, or, or like that. Big Mac, <laughs> you know, like the Big Mac is an art or something like that. You more no, they weren't saying that. Yeah. They weren't saying that. They were, I mean, they may not have defined, you know, good <laughs> food as, as in terms of Michelin stars, but mm-hmm. they were, what they were really saying is, and this is a, because they don't really, this distinction seems to be lost. I mean, in some ways, this is one of the intellectual origins of my later book about artists and what art is becoming in an age of content. But what, so it was an, you know, what I think is behind this food is art thing um, is an inability to distinguish between different kinds of creativity, right? Creativity sure. has become this sacred word now. I'm not saying that food isn't creative, but not everything creative is art. What does art do? What is art about? Art is about creating meaning, right? Um, we can say that a work of art seems profoundly true to us, or it seems false and mendacious. We don't say that about pasta. <laughs> we don't ask whether pasta is true. We don't ask about a chef, what is this person trying to tell us the way we do about art? When a painter keeps painting what seems to be the same painting over and over again, it's not making any kind of progress, mm-hmm. we say they're repeating themselves. Well, repeating themselves is exactly what, what we want a chef to do. You know, right. we go to a restaurant, we have a great dish, we want to go back a month later and have the same dish, right? Right. All of this means that there's a there's a there's a there's a content aspect to art, a meaning aspect. That's the heart of why art matters to us because it can speak to our experience. It because it can speak. Food, in that sense, doesn't speak and neither do other forms of creativity. Mm-hmm. But because we live in this content economy, all forms of creativity have been rendered equal, and also everyone wants to feel that they are creative. Everyone is insulted when you reject the idea that anyone can be an artist, or that everyone already is an artist. These are now often sort of modern articles of faith. And to say, no, not everyone is an artist, and probably not everyone could even have been an artist, is this kind of like, it's like you're insulting people's dignity. It's, this is funny. This is almost like, uh, I'm sure you've seen Ratatouille, right? The the Pixar movie sure. with the red. It's almost sure. like the, uh, I I think, I just popped in my head because my kid watches Pixar. Uh, like that's Those are like his go-to if, if we had the TV on or like Pixar movies. Um, but that's, it's funny. It's, it's just sort of the part of that movie is the idea where the, (laughs) the, the cook who is, uh, sort of like the, uh, uh, the guiding light to the rat, Remy, who wants to cook. Is that basically the idea that anybody can cook? And then there's the critic, uh, you know, ego, uh, uh, yeah, you know, Ego, yeah. Anton Ego, conspicuously named Anton Ego, uh, saying, you know, no, that's, uh, you know, 
that's a, what a horrible, like, not, uh, clearly not everybody can cook, or at least not everybody can cook uh, well, or cook to the ability where people would come to think of it or discuss it as art or something like that. Uh, but that's kind of funny how that's uh, that's sort of like mirrored in the uh, in that movie too. You know, speaking about food and speaking about yeah, art. Yeah, and... I actually, I actually think, I actually think what what the evil critic rejects initially, because he has a change of heart. I think right, he right, yeah. Initially, that a yeah. that a rat can be a great chef, but yes. I think what he says at the end is that art, that great food can't come from anyone, but it can come from anywhere. Yes, exactly. And exactly I certainly right. agree. And I certainly agree with that. Oh, sure. To art and. People will misinterpret what I'm saying about not everyone being an artist. Mm-hmm. They'll immediately assume that I'm being an elitist in the old sense and saying, well, certain classes of people can produce great art and certain classes don't. And I'm mm. not, of course, I'm not saying that at all. Sure, yeah. But I am, but I, I, you know, I, I, I think there's no reason to believe that creative talent isn't distributed fairly evenly and fairly randomly within the population. But that doesn't mean that every person. Maybe, yes, every kind of person is maybe equally capable of being, but, but, most, but most people aren't. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe even, or at least musically or music-wise, it seems like, well, of course, this is all subjective, but it seems like uh, music, well, at least popular music, was maybe a little bit better when more of it was being made by people from... Uh, the lower end of the economic spectrum than there is now. It seems like everybody famous in music nowadays, like and this, seems to be something that's like just sort of mirroring mirroring everywhere in society. That everybody, or not everybody, but for the most, but a lot of people, if you look up their their bios or you know you read about them uh, online, these new artists, uh, musicians. Their parents, they come from households where both their parents are professionals or they're, they're at the very least like upper middle class. Or You think of like somebody like Taylor Swift. I mean, she's a great uh, musician, great songwriter and all that stuff. Um, but uh, Taylor, both Taylor Swift, I mean, Taylor Swift's parents moved from Pennsylvania to Nashville when she was a kid to further her... Um, to further her musical dreams, right? And not many parents uh, can, you know, have the the means to just pick up and move halfway across the country just to, you know, just to, so that their kid can, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, achieve what they want to achieve in, in their chosen field or whatever. Um, so would Taylor Swift, you know, if she was from, uh, you know, uh, from a non... A, I hate to use the word privilege, but uh, from a background that wasn't as privileged, would she still have become famous? And you know, probably, but it probably would have took longer than her, you know, because she basically made it big when she was like 16 years old. Um, but it just seems like, and I hate to use the word auth- authenticity too, but I don't know, but it seems just like uh, music was better when it wasn't sort of dominated by uh, or the you know all the pop stars were coming from uh, you know just sort of upper middle class backgrounds. I don't know. I mean that's probably something for much longer discussion. <laughs> but well, no, but but let but let me say that you've now touched on one of the important points that I make in my book about the arts economy, the death of the artist, 
because what you just said about music, I haven't heard anybody say it about music. I think you're making a great point, and we can just think about the, the great country music star just died, Loretta Lynn, whose father yeah. was a coal miner and his sister was a farmer. Um, I have heard people say it about theater, about film acting, about uh, 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 creative writing, which is that these fields, they always skewed affluent, maybe not music, but many of the others did, just because the arts are always an uncertain profession. Mm-hmm. But as a result of the rise of the tech platforms and the way they've changed the arts economy, and the growing in, in economic inequality in this country, which is dividing our country into, you know, a smaller, say, 20% of winners and 80% of losers. Um, this is creating the situation. This is what has created the situation you just described. It's much, much harder. I don't know that Taylor Swift would have made it. I don't know that she would ever have had the chance. Because so many, I mean, I talked to a lot of people for that book, a lot of especially younger artists, mm-hmm. the death of the artist. It's incredibly challenging to try to make any kind of career in the arts now. Because the platforms pay you so little, because rent is so high, student debt, the minimum wage has has eroded against inflation now for decades. We haven't had a, you know, we haven't raised the federal minimum. Um, This is what's causing that skew. And I agree with you that it's one of the things that's made art really boring. I think music isn't as good as it used to be. I think a lot of the arts aren't as good as they used to be. And it has to do with the conditions under which artists are able to do their work. So you don't think it's just we're old and out of touch with, you know, because I think I think the kids, a lot of younger people say this too. (laughs) A lot of younger people say this too. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like, I mean, what's the sort of, like, at least in popular music, the uh, only, uh, form of it that really has any sort of like vitality to it is like hip-hop and rap right and though that's primarily the um the one uh the one genre where the people for the most part who are uh where the where the cream is rising for the most part is is coming from obviously more of a um less advantaged uh background you know. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Uh, well, again, we've gone. Oh wow, we've already gone an hour. <laughs> uh, well, one more thing, just before we go. Uh, you, because you, you had a, you had a, uh, an essay in here about the platinum age of television uh, from back in 2016. Have you seen the new? Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen this new Rolling Stone list of the greatest shows of all time? I have. Greatest. Te- oh, all right. Too bad. I was hoping you would, because uh, it's. Uh, um. All right. I'll just. How about this? I'll read you off the top ten, and okay. you tell me if uh, you think this is uh, insane or not. So I'll start from ten to one. So they have at number ten is the Mary Tyler Moore Show. All right. I think that's you know. All right. I can see that. Uh. uh number nine is Atlanta. The uh, Donald Glover. You know that show on FX. Have you seen? Atlanta. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I have. yeah. Okay. All right. Number eight is Cheers. Uh, number seven is Mad Men. Six is Seinfeld. Five is Fleabag. Uh, four is The Wire. Three is Breaking Bad. Two is The Simpsons, and uh, one is The Sopranos. 
Look, so, I, the whole idea of these mixes <laughs> is ridiculous to me. <laughs> I mean, that's the first thing. You know, yeah. you're mixing uh, drama and comedy. There's obviously a, a bias towards the present. They mm-hmm. always are, you know, whether it's the list of the best basketball players or the list of what, best whatever. Yeah. And it's obviously very subjective. I, I don't really have anything useful to say about it. What I will <laughs> say is that, that I wrote that piece in 2015. I mean, it was a review of uh, several books about television. Um, I don't think, you know, I think it's pretty, it's been pretty clear for a number of years now that we're, the platinum age is over. There's this great burst yep. of creativity that started with The Sopranos, or maybe slightly earlier. Um, and television became this amazing new art form in the first decade or decade and a half of the 21st century. And it had to do, as it so often does, with changing economic conditions, right? HBO pioneered a different model. And then other um, cable networks like FX and AMC came in, and then you had the streamers. But eventually, um, people sort of figured out a formula, right? Like what had been a great diversity of different kinds of experiments was, was ultimately kind of refined into a very specific formula that we call prestige television. Um, it's, it's very unlikely. And I mean, uh, ex, you know, people who know the field said this. It's not just me saying this. Mm-hmm. Very unlikely that The Wire would ever get made now. A lot of the really interesting comedies I mean, Atlanta is a more is a more recent show, and that's terrific. I think it is a terrific show, but what we see is just kind of stuff that's just kind of okay, that's just kind of good. Yeah, like it's better than TV was before The Sopranos, because TV was almost entirely garbage. But it's just kind of kind of okay, and it has to do with this, like I said, with sort of like the creativity kind of getting tamed and institutionalized. Um, but it also has to do with with the uh, multiplication of platforms and, yeah. the, and the dilution of ta- and the dilution of talent. Um, and it's it's really unfortunate. And now you know it used to be that every year HBO would debut a new show, and it was it was amazing. Like you couldn't believe how great this was. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you kind of have to pick through these hundreds of shows to find the two or three that are really, you know, there are a few that are entertaining, and you know they're entertaining. Yeah. They're but fine, the you that, know. Yeah, they're, they're just you know, they're fine. But but the two or three that are truly distinguished, um, that's become really rare, and I think that's sad. Yeah. Do you have anything you've watched recently that you really uh, really like? Well, I think Atlanta is, is is a really unique point of view. I think Succession is great. I just started watching Severance. It seems like it might be a really great show as well, but. Um, and I mean, yeah. you know, I, I sort of watch, I sort of at least start all the things that people are talking about because I am always looking for something good. And I think, you know, most of it just, I just, you know, I'll watch an episode and that's it. Mm-hmm. Have you seen, uh, yeah. oh, uh, I'm just reminded of it because I just saw that the third season's finally out on Netflix. Have you seen that show Dairy Girls? No. All right. <clears throat> that's a, that's my one recommendation for it. It's a comedy. It's a British okay. or technically Irish comedy. So it's about these... It's this group of high school girls in in Derry, in Northern Ireland, growing up in the 90s during the Troubles, and they're they're Catholic mm. in predominantly you know Protestant Northern Ireland, um, and it's just uh, and it's not entirely about like the Troubles. It's just sort of like something that's you know that's just like there in the background and it like mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. sort of thing, but it's not like in your face. Uh, but the one of the girls' cousins 
um, ends up uh, her her mother sends them to live uh, with the because he's a boy uh, with their cousins in Ireland and because he's Catholic he cannot go I mean he can go to the regular uh, public school or you know what we can what we would call a public school um, in Londonderry because he's Catholic and because if he goes there then all the Protestants will just kick the shit out of him every day so he has to end up going to like the all girls catholic school uh yeah, by himself as a boy and it's just it's no it's just really like cute and funny uh uh show uh surprisingly touching um i don't know how i found it on netflix but it was just like one of those things like yeah, i'll give it a shot and it turned out to be like maybe it's because my expectations weren't that high but it turned out to be like you know uh I, I really loved it, so um, I'm excited to watch the, the, the third season, which is the final season. And it's only, I think it's British, so there's only like six or seven episodes, you know, uh, right. per series. Right. So that's the one nice thing about it, about the British shows, is that you know they don't like, uh, there's no not as much fluff. So I that's my one recommendation for you if you get if you got time to okay. you know, check something. And, and they're only like you know 20 25 minutes because it's a comedy. So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, that's the other nice thing about it too. Yeah, anyway, all right, uh, we've gone a little, sorry, we kept you a little long, but there's so much stuff I wanted to talk about in the book, because I really, really enjoyed it, um, but uh, anyway, I guess I'll end it on uh, the one question I pretty much ask everybody that comes on this podcast, and that's, uh, um, you know, what would you like the audience to get out of this book, or, you know, what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from having read it? Well, I mean, it's a collection, so and it's a collection on lots of different topics. So I'm not sure there is one thing. But I think, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot in here for a reader who might be interested in some of the same things I'm interested in. How, how the Internet is changing us, how higher education is changing, and the stakes involved in higher education, um, the arts and culture. There also, there's a, there's a section of pieces about being Jewish and belonging to an identity group and, you know, and what that means today, you know, that's obviously become a very important issue today. So that's what I would mm. All right. Great. Well, uh, before we go, anything else uh, you want to mention? Anything else you want to plug? Uh, you know, any appearances no, or social media or anything good. like that? No, I think we're good. Thanks. All right. Good. Okay. Great. All right. Well, again, the uh, book is The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society uh, the author is Bill <laughs> before uh, Bill DeResowitz. Um and uh, like I said as I mentioned before in uh, essay collections why I like them so much is you know there's uh, um, you the, you're, in, you're uh, introduced to things that you might not uh, normally have read about or thought about and that sort of stuff and there's lots of Lots of stuff, uh, lots of stuff in, in there to, to chew on and think about, and it's, it was delight to it was a delight to read. Highly recommend it for everybody out there, and uh, and Bill it was a delight to uh, to discuss the book with you and chat about the book and uh, other stuff. So uh, thank you very much for uh, coming coming on the podcast and talking about it with sure, me. Sure, thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books you'd like us to discuss on this podcast, you can reach out to me at tbenson at heartland.org. 
That's a T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, uh, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we do have um, a Twitter account for the uh, for the podcast. You can you know check us out there. If you have any questions, comments, whatever, reach out to us there at uh, at uh, what, what the hell is it at ill books at i l l books. So check us out. You know, uh, send us a DM, give us a follow. You know, all that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah. So other than that, that's pretty much it. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll uh, see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye bye. My son.